Again, John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have trusted that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we trust that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now trust? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is God's word. A quick exercise. I want you to grab a, a pen underneath your seat or a pen you have available and something to write on. Uh, you can use the bulletins you were handed on the way in if you want to use that, one of the bulletins. And here's what I want you to write down. Uh, if you could share a meal or have a beer with someone in history, who would that person be? Just write the name of that person down. It can't be Jesus. All right, that's the one rule. You cannot use Jesus in this scenario. He's, you're going to hear more about him in a minute. <laughs> uh, all right, share a meal, have a beer with one person in history. Who would it be? Because at some point in your life, you've almost certainly been asked this question. Uh, as an icebreaker, potentially at a team-building exercise at work, uh, at a conference, hotel, ballroom, somewhere, potentially a small group, or, of course, now, during this particular sermon, you're being asked this question. Raise your hand... If you wrote down Abraham Lincoln, yes, I knew it. There's always someone. There's always someone. Uh, anybody wrote down Johannes Gutenberg? He invented the printing press. Come on. It's totally underrated choice. I mean, we wouldn't have books today. We wouldn't have this Bible. No one ever chooses Gutenberg. <laughs> Poor guy. All right, okay. I, I took a risk by doing this, but I was pretty positive that someone would write down Abraham Lincoln. Every time I've heard this question asked, someone always throws out honest aid because everyone wants to be friends with him, except the people who actually knew him. Lincoln won the 1860 presidential election with just 39.8% of the popular vote, making him literally the least popular president ever elected in American history. Of course, once he advanced to the Oval Office, he had some more friends, some more supporters, However, in the summer of 1862, uh, just as his cabinet was finally coalescing around him and his most ardent supporters were gathering around him, he was about to do something that would make all of them scatter, scatter away from him, which was he was going to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Just prior to his, its issuance, Lincoln was rumored to have said to his wife, Mary, now they say they trust my judgment. 
we will see. We will see. My judgment may soon be disagreeable to theirs. In fact, that was the case. Hailed as, of course, the most important executive act potentially in, in American history, now, even many who supported abolition at the time thought that emancipation could only be carried out by an iron-fisted despot, a dictator. And they thought that's what Lincoln was trying to become in doing this. Indeed, those who claimed that they trusted his judgment would scatter from him when he issued this act, leaving leaving him with fewer supporters than even the least popular president-elect just two years earlier. That prophetic, sort of uh, ironic comment that Lincoln makes to his wife, now they say they trust my judgment, we will see, reminded me of the passage that Dave read for us this morning. Everything's finally making sense for Jesus' closest supporters. Things finally seem to click for them. Ah, now, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things. And Jesus responds, do you now trust? He picks up on their nows and offers his with irony. Because the decisive moment of his life is approaching, and instead of everyone drawing near to him and to one another, they will all desert him. All deserted. So, in effect, Jesus says of their naive support, Do you now trust when life makes sense? The last few months, we've been spending our Sundays looking at the biggest questions of life asked of Jesus and sometimes by Jesus to us. We've been looking at them in, in his good friend John's account of Jesus' life. And Jesus' question today is a sobering one for us. Do you now trust? Do you now trust me when life makes sense? The insinuation is that it won't always make sense, right? That what if I was to tell you that you all fail me, that you all scatter away when I need you the most, and that there is a life ahead of you that's full of trials and tribulations, even though you know me, in fact, because you know me, You're going to experience this even more. Jesus wants them to feel, his closest supporters, he wants them to feel that their faith is fragile and it's about to get exposed. And yet, unless their trust is exposed to the harshest elements of life, it can never grow strong. And that's our message in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this, that trust gets refined through scatterings and tribulations. Trust Our trust in Jesus gets refined through scatterings and tribulations. To refine a metal is to use use white-hot flame to rid it of weakness and impurities, to make it strong, to make it pure. And people, all of us, either either run from the flame or we let it do its work. But man, to let the white-hot flame of life do its work in us can be excruciating. It's hard not to run away from it. The good news is that Jesus, even here in this sobering passage, offers us two deep resources to refine our trust after scatterings and during tribulations. He gives us some resources to, to persevere through them 
in a way that refines trust. And those two are that scatterings are met with the peace of the cross and tribulation. Tribulations are met with the confidence of the resurrection. So we're going to get into and talk about these two resources that will help us in refining our trust in Jesus. The first is scattering is met with the peace of the cross. I played golf with a gentleman this week, um, a delightful British man named James, who played the entire round of golf barefoot, by the way. So I knew that there was something to this guy, right? When you just go out and do a sport barefoot, like it's impressive. And, he, and it, was, it was ironic because he hit a lot, of, a lot of his balls in the sand trap. So like a lot of the time he was barefoot on the beach and we had a good laugh about that. But you know, I mean, you, you, you play something like that barefoot, there's something to this guy, right? Does he, does he own a Volkswagen van? You know, does he, is, gonna, things like that. It turns out he's, he's part of this science of the soul community that meets regularly out by a Rooster Run golf course. He showed me where they met. And, and, and they practice a blend of Christianity, Buddhism, uh, sort of Eastern spirituality. Much of their practices center around uh, meditations aimed at achieving inner peace, achieving inner peace through the divine presence. So in a way, in the same ballpark of what most of us want when we seek peace from God. So I straight up asked him, you know, does it work? Does, do you get the peace that you seek? And he responded, well, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's not certain. It's not permanent. You kind of just have to work at it. And while I appreciated his response, friends, Jesus means to anchor his followers in a more certain peace, a more definite peace. He must, because he's just told them, hey, look, you're going to be scattered, each to his own homes, and you're going to leave me alone. You're going to betray me, desert me when I need you the most. He follows that up by saying, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. I mean, really? No one's walking away from that comment, sensing, experiencing God's peace, right? That would be nuts to be told, you're going to desert me, betray me, scatter away from me. I've said this to you, that you're going to have peace, right? If anything, I'm feeling more anxious, more shame, more despondent. Oh, man, Jesus, you just told me I'm going to fail you. And then the worst possible time to fail you. But Jesus means to anchor us in a peace that transcends any feeling we might have, any temporary feeling. As we see here, it actually begins with a pretty crappy feeling, betrayal, failure, scattering. I thought about changing that word out and using failure instead of scattering. You know, because it's kind of more modern, you know, more, more to our senses today. Failure, not scattering. But I kept scattering in here, not only because the Scripture uses it, but also because of this image that kept running on a loop in my mind. When you think of scattering, what comes to mind for you? What image comes to mind, I wonder? For me, I kept thinking of roaches. I kept thinking of roaches when you turn the lights on. You know, were you thinking of that too, Joel? I think of roaches, right? They scatter to every corner. You turn a light on, they go everywhere. You know, when you turn the light on in a kitchen, not our kitchen per se, <laughs> but a kitchen, <laughs> generic kitchen. It's kind of a vile image, I understand. But then again, Jesus 
tells his followers they're going to scatter just like that. East to every corner. Indeed, none but one of his best friends is anywhere to be found upon his arrest, his trial, and his subsequent execution. It's no different from every time I say no to Jesus and yes to me. And I go off and I turn my back and I run and I say me. It's telling that Jesus says his disciples will go each to his own home. They're going to scatter each to his own home because home is what's a place of comfort, right? Jesus is the light. And, and so often my response to Jesus' presence, his word, his light is to scatter from him to my places of comfort. Places that, 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 are, that are warm, that are comfortable for me. For some, that might be uh, ways of self-medicating th- through uh, alcohol, through, through drugs, through food. Some of us run from Jesus to affirmation, whether it's affirmation in the presence of someone physical or through social media or something like that. We, some of us escape into an alternate reality. Many of us flee to a a political tribe that will agree with our self-righteous anger, right? And so we go to our places of comfort, each of us, to some of us, to a literal home. For some of us, it's it's privatizing our faith. And that's happened so much during the pandemic, right? Firing up YouTube, staying in our pajamas, we do church at home. And it just seems easier than doing all the one another's that Jesus calls us to through his word and with one another. Pray for one another, encourage one another, love one another. It's just easier, just more comfortable. How is it then that telling them they're going to betray him, going to give them peace and give us peace because it seems devastating? Last time I preached, we saw that Peter tells Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus responds, actually, You're going to deny me three times. And then here he says, and you're also going to flee from me when I'm killed. Had to have been devastating, but that's the key. Jesus expects more failure from us than we expect from ourselves. Jesus expects more failure from us than we expect from ourselves. And that's comforting. What's even more comforting is that he's done something about it. He's done something about that failure. When Jesus endures the cross, he makes peace between us and God. He goes to the cross, and God and us are reconciled together at last. There's something instinctive in us that that wants payback when we've wronged another or when we're in their debt, right? We want to pay them back to make up for it. Even though they say they forgive us, we feel like, well, we got to really do something to get that back. Or, or, or when they grabbed the check last time, right, at a meal. Yeah, I know you got it, but I want to get it back. I think of recently, knowing this sermon was coming, I was going to preach on this. I actually paid for lunch for a couple of you who normally would grab a check. And I know it makes you uncomfortable because we all sense that, right? There's an uneasy insecurity. I would propose it's because we are all made in God's image that he's not only a God of love, he's a God of justice, Forgiveness doesn't seem to really work unless there's also payback for that forgiveness. And so it is that on the cross, Jesus pays 
for all the times that we've scattered from him. He restores relational peace between us and God. God no longer looks at us and sees debt, but sees Jesus' payment for it. And that is good news. And think about what an incredible resource is that is for us and for our peace. No matter how you feel about yourself, no matter how you feel, feel about your failures, no matter how often you've scattered when the lights got bright and the heat was on, you're forever right with God because of what he has done through Jesus' work on the cross. Yeah. So, so even when you can't sit still to meditate, even when within 30 seconds of your praying for peace to God, you fall asleep. Or even now, as you've zoned out during this sermon, I see some of you. That's, I mean, even now, your sense of trusting that you're loved, you're accepted, you're being looked after is rock solid. Rock solid because you have a deeper peace, a peace that transcends any feeling. Jesus expected more failure from you than you, even you expect from yourself. And he's done something about it forever. You can, only, you can only know such peace, really, because of failure, because of your scattering. Otherwise, you think it'd have to do with your own performance. I've been a good person, and so God has given me peace. No, you can only know it because you failed. Because you failed. And you have peace. Nothing changes. God still loves you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. He still cares about you. He's still looking after you in your life. That is a deeper peace. He gives us another resource as well, and I want to talk about that for a moment. Tribulation. Because sometimes trials of our own making, scattering, but sometimes trials, tribulations come upon us externally, not because of anything we have done, but tribulation is met with the confidence of the resurrection Jesus says here, in this world, in the world, you will have tribulation. It is a guarantee, but why? Why does it have to be so? At the very beginning of the Bible, we're told why. God placed human beings in the world, and he gave them authority over the world. He gave them authority to rule it, which is really incredible. God so loved us that he put us in charge over all creation. It's a wonderful privilege, but they rebelled against him. These human beings did. And so humanity abdicated the God-given rule that was theirs. And unwittingly, they handed over to the serpent who tempted them, Satan, who afflicts us now through his rule over the world, afflicts us with every affliction we see in Genesis chapter 3. Shame, blame, deception, bodily pain, Frustration with work, relational strife at home, enmity, friction between man and nature, and ultimately death. Death, which is the supreme tool Satan uses through this world to afflict us. It is the supreme tool to afflict us. Actual death, whether you or someone you love, Missing out on the lives of those we care about. Will I ever experience joy again, love again after losing this person? 
or, or, or what if this is it for me? And, and I don't get the life I thought I'd get, the love I thought I'd get, the joy I thought I'd get out of life to the fullest. And it's not just death itself, but it's the finality of death that casts a shadow over all our tribulations, right? Like death casts this, this, this huge shadow. I think, don't think we sometimes realize, for example, loneliness. Will I, ever spe- <clears throat> Will I ever again experience the warmth of a relationship? We wonder that because of the finality of death. What about being in a miserable, <clears throat> maybe even semi-abusive relationship? And you wonder, will I ever get to experience someone really loving me without me having to give something constantly back to them? The finality of death makes all our tribulations seem like permanent losses, not just temporary ones, right? Because will I ever get that again? Or will I ever be relieved from this before I die? I remember when my family and I left the Cayman Islands for the United States, that was, a, that was so right and good for our family at the time. But I have to confess to you, I wondered, would I ever find a church and a culture in which to pastor that was as good as this one? Will I ever find that church? The jury's still out here, guys, to be honest. No, but I mean, well, but will I, I had that question, to be honest. You know, I took a year break. I mean, we had 17 years in ministry. So I took a year break and served voluntarily in a local church, loved it. Got to preach in a church plant. And when, I, when we sensed God calling me back into pastoral ministry, the pandemic immediately hit. It was that, that timing. You wonder, okay, Lord, what is this? And then on top of that, for the first six churches to which I applied, I finished in second place of all the candidates. Second. I was a silver medalist. So you're, you're looking at the Nancy Kerrigan of all pastoral candidates right here. It was crazy. I mean, I love, this was my passion. I love roping people in to the good news about Jesus, experience through the life of a local church. This is what I love. And what if what I experienced in the nine years in the Cayman Islands was as good as it was going to get? Because I know that death casts a shadow over every bad thing, but also every good thing that's cut short. And when Jesus says, I have overcome the world, he's referring to his resurrection, rising from the dead, defeating it. Ultimately, Jesus will do away with death and tribulations forever. But what does that look like now? What is that? What is his overcoming the world through his resurrection look like now? I was thinking about this this week. And, and the Holy Spirit gave me two images that really helped me in terms of how I thought about my tribulations. And I want to share them with you. And they're kind of odd, I have to confess to you. But they're two corresponding images, and that is the Grim Reaper and a gardener. All right, the Grim Reaper and a gardener. I put the cartoon version of the Grim Reaper up here. The rest were a little too much. Grim Reaper and a gardener. And the reason I put these up here is I ran across a poem by a great, by a wonderful old Christian pastor and poet uh, named George Herbert, uh, 17th century British bloke. And in this poem he wrote called Time, he addresses the Christian. 
saying, saying death was once known as executioner with a scythe, with a hatchet. Remember the scythe, the things they reap with? Death was once known as executioner with a scythe and a hatchet, bringing with it dread and finality. But now, because of the resurrection, death is a gardener with a pruning knife. And that image really stuck with me. Um, yeah, I think because what he was trying to communicate is because Jesus rose from the dead, as, as the first fruits, as the deposit of our resurrection still to come, death can only enhance our experience of love and joy. Because, as, as Pastor Tim Keller once put it, death is defanged. It's defanged. It can no longer remove you from love and joy. It can only usher into our lives more love and more joy than we ever dared imagine. Right? And so every tribulation, which through the finality of death makes you think, man, it's, it, it will never get better. It will always get better. Or any tribulation that makes you wonder, is this, is this all I'm going to get? Is this all I'm ever going to get? You will get infinitely more through death because Jesus has overcome the world. That means that the blade of death is no longer the grim reaper, but a gardener. Peeling back the troubles of this world so that you can enter the joy and the love of a new world in the presence of him who is love, right? It's no longer a, a, a cutting off of finality. It's a peeling back to something that is far more wonderful than we ever dared imagine. Consider then what, what, a resur what a resource to us the resurrection is when we're going through tribulations in life. No matter how bad things get, or no matter, good, no, no matter how good things appear, the best is always yet to come. The best is always yet to come because Jesus has turned death from reaper to gardener. So if you were to never experience tribulations... If you were to never experience them, you would be deceived. You'd be lulled into thinking, this, as, this is it. This is as good as it's going to get. That's not true. Jesus said and tells us to take heart. This phrase was usually used by great generals towards their armies right before they went into battle. They would say, take heart. And friends, I tell you this morning, take heart. Your scatterings and tribulations are necessary to refine in you a rock-solid trust. Sure, they could crush you. Sure, they could defeat you. But through Jesus, they're meant to refine in you a deeper trust so that when you fail, run to the cross to remember a forever peace. And when you experience hardships and tribulations from outside, remember the best is always still yet to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for this. We're so grateful that we can actually be grateful for times of our scatterings, our failures, and times when we experience tribulation. What a testimony for the world to see. What a great reversal this is of everything we think about the world 
and is reversed through your death and resurrection. That we have a rock, can have a rock-solid peace that transcends every feeling of peace we might have in the moment because we know that you have restored us to the Father forever and we're loved and looked after and cared for no matter what. But we remember that when we fail. Love how you do that. And thank you also for the resurrection. Through the resurrection, as we experience trials and tribulations, we know that this isn't it. That there is always something better. There's always a deeper joy that death will usher in one day because we'll be met face to face with a risen Savior who loves us. And so we can continue the fight and take heart in this world. May we shine like stars as a result. And may our lives be testimonies and evidence of your good news to all around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.